0: Turn with me to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18 this morning. The title is Check Your Attitude, and there's going to be five areas uh, that I, kind of as I outlined it, um, that we'll look at between now and the end of the book. Now, we're only going to get down to verse 18, and we'll get three attitude checks, and then in our next study um, um, in 1 Thessalonians, as we wrap up the book, we'll get the next two. So, um, what we're talking about is, number one, attitude towards leadership. We're going to talk about attitudes towards others. And then attitude of praise um, inside the church. So let's begin by reading verses 12 and 13 on that first point of attitude with leadership. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, be at peace among yourselves. so the attitude of leadership so listen here I get to talk about your attitude towards leadership and I'm the guy that's the, one of the leaders, not the only leader I'm one of the leaders here so yeah it's, I always find moments like this a little bit awkward, but um, I find great ease in this I'm not trying to correct anything um, there's nothing you know as you are as I give this message you're, you're wondering I wonder who he's talking about. I'm not talking about anybody. These are the principles of Scripture. These are truths that I think we can all step back and acknowledge. Yes, that's right. Um, but nonetheless, we do need to be instructed about how to deal with those who are leadership. I have leadership over me. You have leadership over you. And leadership is something that is needed. We don't want to be in a, in a town where there's no leadership. We don't want to be in a school where there's no leadership. We don't want to have a military with no leadership. You don't want a football team or any kind of sports team or a band that has no leadership. Leadership's required. Family, um, there's got to be leadership. And so there, this, is, this is true within the church. I find it interesting um, to talk about leadership in light of the day in which we live, where leadership and authority, uh, some, somebody else having authority over us, is so questioned like never before. You know, leadership is, cool. who gives you the right to, as a teacher, to tell me what to do? Whereas it was self-evident for many years, I'm your teacher. There, the authority was just automatically recognized within government, within the police. And we see the way that there's a reaction to, against the police. And, 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 and it's like they're just serving and trying to help. And, and they're, they're being challenged in the most basic things. And we see that there's a reaction in our culture um, against leadership. Now, we're going to talk about bad leadership. So I acknowledge there is bad leadership out there, too. But this mentality, I think, begins to have an impact upon the church when we begin to just reject all leadership. But the word of the Lord is this, is to recognize and esteem those who are in that place of leadership recognize. You mean put them on a pedestal? No, not that. That's not the kind of recognition that's being talked about. To uh, uh, all kinds of special privileges and benefits? No, not that either. Recognize in this sense, you have the place, this, you know, team of people, the elders of the church have a place to lead the church and to give guidance and direction on how to live our lives, how to uh, walk with the Lord, how to Um, deal with conflict, the kind of things we should be doing, recognize that they have a place appointed by the Lord. And it is one that's been appointed by the Lord. That's the plan. Now, can somebody, without the Lord placing them, grasp leadership? Yes, that can happen. But let's leave that outlier off to the side for another time. Ephesians chapter 4 says that when Jesus was resurrected from the dead and ascended to heaven... That he sent gifts down to men, the pastor, teacher, apostle, prophet, evangelist, and so forth, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. It's God's plan that there would be leadership within the church so that the church can find an edification, they could be strengthened, and they can put their hands to the work that is before them. In First Peter. Um, Peter exhorts the younger people to submit to the leadership. So this is not just a Pauline idea. And then again in Hebrews 13, 17, we read, "...Obey them that rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. As they must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you." I don't know exactly what that means, but it doesn't sound good, so don't let that be the case. I have to give an account for how, uh, for your souls. I have, to, I have been challenged, and the leadership of the church has been challenged in, and given the task to help you grow in your walk with the Lord and then to serve. Equip the saints, build them up for the work of ministry. You are to be built up in your faith to such a place that then you engage in the work of ministry. So if you ever wonder, why is it they're always talking about you know, getting our lives right, getting plugged in, start using your gift, because that's our job description. That's what we're to do, is to get you to a healthy place in your walk with the Lord. And if you're already there, to help others get to a healthy place in their walk with the Lord and use the gifts that the Lord has given to you. So this is the the exhortation that is given. And, um, you know, in each of um, these statements that we read here, that recognize those who labor among you, those that are over you, and those that admonish you. So each one of these is a, uh, it's a participle that's in the present tense, which implies that this is a habitual characteristic of the ac- activities of the leadership, is that they were there to be continually laboring hard. The word labors, toilsome burden. That there's a laboring that takes place, that there's an over you. But, it, but notice that they are over you, what? In the Lord, it's not over you because I want to be over you or because somebody else wants to be over you. It's over you and the Lord, meaning the Lord has placed that person, that, that, those individuals, in that position to speak into your life, to encourage you in your faith. You are not here for me. You are not here for the leadership, for us to fulfill our ministry dreams or whatever it might be that we could get caught up in. We are here to serve you. And as you are strengthened, that you in turn would all serve each other. That's God's plan. It's very clear. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to what? He wanted to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And that is the model that is laid out before us. So we are to labor, Uh, we are to be over you, to have that place of leadership, not as a different class of people, not at all. Same, we're all equal at the foot of the cross. Just different function, different role. And admonishment, um, as they are admonishing you. Again, this idea of a, a, a continual instruction that's going forth. And the word admonish can simply mean instruct, like I'm doing right now. But admonishment could also, and most often it does have the idea of exerting a corrective influence. So you're, you're dealing with a particular issue where things are out of place. And then the leadership is to exert a corrective influence upon that person or upon a circumstance based upon the word of God for the benefit of that individual and for the benefit of the body of Christ. So, practically speaking, how can you carry this out? Well, you can submit to the leadership of the church and you can pray for them. And I love to hear some of you say, We're praying for you. Great please don't ever stop praying. I'll take all the prayer that I can possibly get to uh, fulfill what God has called me to do. But as I mentioned just a few moments ago, we're not naive. We understand that there can be bad leadership or good leadership can get off the rails. Some of you probably have experienced that. Some of you maybe have have seen this take place firsthand. And, And when that happens, that's a grievous thing. That is a heartbreaking thing when that takes place. So leadership is not infallible. And I will say, just because somebody says they are a leader within the church, just because somebody wants to, to be over you and instruct you, um, listen, not everybody who asks for that deserves to receive that because some people are off. Some people don't have you know, that, that gifting. They're just, they're just grasping for that. <clears throat> So when is it appropriate to question the leadership of your church? To question. It's always okay to ask a question. But when is it appropriate to question what is being done? And I'll give you just these three things. If there's something wrong with the doctrine, if there's something wrong with the ethics and the integrity by which things are being conducted, or there's just an outright moral failure. In those three instances, it's always right to question, and to even call them to repentance. So if, if a doctrine is off, so if I, you know, somebody stands in this pulpit and begins to teach that Jesus you know, is one of the ways by which a person can be saved, and He's not the only way, hey, you have a responsibility to question and to call that in, you know, out and to call the leadership to repent. So in doctrinal matters, and ethical issues. Now, I may be slicing the words kind of thin here between ethical and moral. Um, but ethical, meaning that what's being done is being done the right way, with the right spirit, with the right heart. And there's no shadows that are taking place. There's, it's, it's, you, can, you have a sense of that it's right. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to know everything. You know, for there to be light on a subject does not mean that you will always know everything. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. There have been times where we have had to correct, admonish a brother or sister because of um, something that's become apparent in their life and it's happened privately and they've repented of it, but their public ministry has to be altered until they are restored, until they work through this issue. And um, sometimes people will see that are close to that individual... Well will say I don't think this is right. I don't think you should do this, and um and I was like, well, do you know what happened? I don't know. Well, I do know, and if you know what I if you knew what I knew, you would agree that this is a right way to do this. So you, you have to at that point you have to trust leadership that they know, and you're like, well, just tell me, so I'll know. No, I can't do that because if I was to tell you, then I'm disclosing something of their life that should be kept private. And so you really have to trust the leadership at that time that they're making the right decision. Um, as it turns to other matters, though, maybe there's, there's a questionable way in which finances are being ha- um, handled. And, you know, so listen, we, we don't make a, a big deal about collecting in the worship of giving um, publicly, nor do we make a big deal about um, giving you know, out reports and stuff. And you, you know, we'll be doing this as we head into the end of the year. But if you, ha- if you give here and you have a question about the finances, you want to know the budget of the church, you, you can come in, sit down, and you can talk. We have a budget. We do it every year, every month. The elders sit down and we look at what the budget was and what we spent and were we under budget and were we on budget and were we over budget. Every single category. And then if we're over budget in an area, which that happens, you know, at different times of the year, then we look, we see which ones were in that category, another report is made, and we go through that. And that's why they're called board meetings, because that's how you feel at the end of the meeting. It's very <laughs> bored after looking at all these reports. So, um, but we, we take that seriously. Um, and then we also, just for the sake of clarity and, and making sure we don't make a mistake, honestly, um, is we have an outside audit firm that comes in and they look at the books every single year. A full audit's done every year. So we have nothing to hide. Um, We just don't make a big deal about it because it's not part of our DNA. We don't don't pressure you to give and we're not constantly giving you all kinds of information um, with that. But it's available if you want it. We're not hiding anything. And then, of course, moral failure. Um, That is an area where um, that brother or whoever it was that has fallen they should be called to repentance like anybody else. Outside of that, if it's not a doctrinal issue and it's not an ethical matter or it's not a moral failure, and it just comes down to how ministry is, uh, is being done and the choice of this or that or, or whatever, listen, somebody's got to make the decisions. And those aren't the things that we should be you know, focused on. And praise the Lord, we're not. Um, but it can easily dominate. It can easily dominate a church. You know, it's like, well, you know, the colors and, you know, this and the carpet and this style and that style. You know, those can become a big issue. And, you know, I, obviously in the middle of a, a big move, I don't expect those to be an issue. And if they are, we have an interior decorator who designed it so you can get mad at her, not me. I have learned something in 25 years of pastoring. So, you know, the, the, but those, can, those are the things that can dominate, a, 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 you know, church life. We changed the bulletin, we moved this, we did that, or it's a different pulpit. Do you know how many fights have been fought over the pulpit being changed at a church? Are you kidding me? I mean, I said, you can't do that. That pulpit's always been there. And, and people will leave, and there's fights, and who cares? Obviously, somebody cares. But why do you care? That's a question. And so these types of issues are not the kinds of things that should be dominating the church. It's like, are you being cared for spiritually? Are the leaders ethical in the way in which they conduct ministry? And are they living lives that are moral or holy? And if you got leadership like that, if I have leadership like that, we've got good leadership. We're never going to agree with each other on every detail. So, yeah, not, not all leadership is going to be worthy of your trust in you placing yourself under that guidance and direction. But when you have it, um, you're required of the Lord to do that. And there are two examples in Scripture. Remember David, his father-in-law, King Saul, terrible guy, terrible leader. And yet, David never once tried to overthrow um, King Saul. And he recognized that leadership Position and he's a great example of one that placed himself under a terrible example of this is Korah. Remember the sons of Korah, Numbers chapter sixteen. Remember they came a contingency of them, Korah being the leader and saying, "Hey, we don't think you should be the leader of you know um, of Israel. You take too much upon yourself. We want some of that." He's like, "Well, I'll tell you what. God called me to do this, but let's let Him decide." We'll just come out here tomorrow and we'll pray and we'll seek the Lord and we'll see what he says. So they do that. They come out the next day, and Moses very humbly just prays for the Lord's will to be, you know, manifested. And then the earth opens up, just swallows everybody that, you know, the sons of Korah. They all fall into this, you know, hole in the earth, and it closes back up. And there's your answer. And Moses got blamed for it. Could you imagine being blamed for something like that? Well, you you think I opened the earth? You think I got like buttons I can just like open the earth and, you know, press in the coordinates and I swallow up whoever I want to? But this was an example of somebody who was trying to uh, reject the leadership that God had appointed. So there are good examples. There's bad examples. So the first attitude check is attitude check with leadership. And you should, you should make certain that you are te- being taught well. You should make certain that the leadership you have is living moral, upright lives. And, and leadership should be walking ethically, with integrity, doing things the correct way. So, again, not perfect, but just striving towards that. Verses 14 and 15 bring us into our next point, which is the attitude that we are to have with others. Attitude that we should have with others. Now we exhort to you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. So now we talk about how all of us should be interacting with one another. The first point is that we should warn those who are unruly, those that are faltering in their faith, those who... Um, they're beginning to walk a different path other than what the Word of God lays out for us. And they're beginning to um, seek other things. Well, you, because notice there in verse 14, it's the brethren that are given this exhortation. It's not the pastor here. It's not the leadership. It's not those who are ruling over you. Yes, they're to admonish, but so are you. Well, I'm I'm sorry, Troy. I, I just don't have the gift of confrontation. That is not a gift. That's never called a gift. That's a necessary, you know, uh, unpleasant experience that all of us have to walk through. We all must be willing to call each other um, to, to walk uprightly before the Lord. If you see somebody who's not walking according to the rule of Christ and the word of the Lord, then we must exhort them and we must call them to, to make the change. And that's something you are to do. It's like, well, you know, I just want to love people. I just don't want to rock the boat. Well, I've got a verse for you. It's Proverbs 27, verses 5 and 6. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. The very person you're claiming to love, if you're unwilling to confront them in their unruly behavior, is actually called the kisses of an enemy in scripture. In other words, yeah, keep backing up. You got plenty of room. You're fine. You're fine. You're good. You're good. And then they go plunging over the cliff, complimenting them the whole way down. Your form looks great, you know. <laughs> the kisses of an enemy. You know, and, I mean, we are, man, that is a, like a, that's a hair trigger issue in our culture right now. You want to call somebody to, to live the right way? You want to call a believer to not, you know, uh, leave their spouse or to, to be faithful in the, as a dad at home or to be walking um, uprightly in their business dealings? And you want to say, hey, your, brother, sister, what you're doing, this is not right. You're not treating your, your wife right. You're not treating your children right. You're not handling your, your finances right. This is, this is wrong. Who are you to judge me? Do you have an answer for that? Yes, you do. Who am I? I'm your brother, and I am your brother keep, brother's keeper. This is, this is what Cain said after um, he had killed his brother Abel. And, and the Lord came and said, where's your brother? What, am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, actually you are. And this is what he's saying. Keep an eye on your brother. And if they are, are going astray, go and warn them. Are you aware of the consequences? If you keep walking down this path, do you know what's going to happen? The next thing that he says is that we are to comfort the faint-hearted and uphold the weak. Comfort and uphold. Kind of the very opposite. I mean, the one is not pleasant, right? Warning the unruly. Whereas this is something where you get to go and show love through um, compassion. I mean, showing love through a warning is not nearly as pleasant as showing love through compassion, but it also has that unpleasant element because they're going through something that's caused them to be downhearted. We're to comfort each other. We're to be there for each other. If this is your home church, you need to know the people in your church. Now, you're not going to know everybody, but you need to know enough people. You need to be involved in this so that you can be comforted and you could be upheld, so that you can comfort and you can uphold. The question is not simply, do you need comfort and do you need to uphold somebody? It's also, maybe somebody else does. Well, I don't know that. Well, if you get to know people, you're going to find them going through the very thing that maybe you've gone through. And the very experience that you've gone through. The heartache that you've gone through. And you've seen the faithfulness of God. Like, I could never talk about these things. You and Troy, we are not our own. We are servants of the Lord. And what God has done in my life is not for private consumption. It is for my blessing, but it is also done in my life that I might be able to turn around and comfort and uphold other people. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are to be here in the best of times and in the worst of times. Even Jonathan, the future king of Israel, understood this. 1 Samuel 23, 16. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David, who had been told by the prophet he would be the next king after Saul. Jonathan went in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. Do you know somebody that's in the woods right now? They are downcast. They are beaten down. Go to them. Go to them. It's like, well, isn't that kind of like the leadership's job. It's our job as much as we're able to do that. But we can't do all of that. And it's not, it's not the plan that we would do all of that. The plan is that we all would do that. We equip you for the work of the ministry so that you are caring for the unruly and warning them, that you are comforting and you're upholding them. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 26, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. It doesn't say if one member suffers, the pastor suffers. It says all of us suffer. We all feel it when we go through difficulties. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with that one. He says to be patient to all. That's the next attitude we should have with each other is patience with one another. You'll have opportunity for this. Don't worry about it. Say, well, I just don't know who to be patient with. Don't worry. Next week is coming. And you'll find somebody that you have to have patience with. And to suffer along with them. This is what we've been called to do. And he says to show no, not to return evil right to somebody who has done something against us. So it's already established something wrong has been done to you. Well, that does not mean that you should render evil to them for what they've done. You actually should be showing them kindness and goodness. Proverbs 19.11. I love these next four verses. These are four verses. I encourage you, write them down. Know where they are. When you are offended, look at this. Proverbs 19.11. The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger. And his glory is to overlook a transgression. Uh, Can you overlook a transgression? If somebody offends you and hurts you, can you overlook that? You're like, nobody's going to do that. A Man, if somebody does anything, I'm going to let them have it. Well, that's not very biblical, and that's not very Christ-like. You, yeah, exhort them, you know, tell them what needs to be there, but there comes a place where you should be able to overlook the transgression and not make it a, a, an issue that's now a place for all of your anger to be you know, unleashed upon them. Proverbs 17, 14, The beginning of strife is like releasing water. Think about pouring a cup of water out. It's like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before the quarrel starts. If you want to stay, keep the water in the cup, then don't dump it out. Because once it's out, you can try and get it back in before it hits the ground, or once it hits the ground, but it's not going to ever be the same. We need to keep that in mind, that when we begin to quarrel with each other, when we begin to strife, you, you, can, you can get it back to a place where it's, all right, we're, we're good, but it's already out. And, and you can't take those things back in. So don't let it happen. Proverbs 20, verse 3. It is honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a quarrel. This has always kind of just made me laugh. Any fool can start a fight. What, what are you proud about? That you yelled louder than them? That you said something that was more cutting than them? Any fool can do that. Here's what's really honorable, is to stop fighting, to stop striving with a person. And then lastly, Proverbs twenty six twenty: Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no tailbearer, the strife ceases. Or if you want to interpret that to zip your lip, that will probably be pretty close to to the heart of what's being said. As long as you keep throwing on the logs of your discontentment and your anger and your frustration, and you keep that situation alive, there comes a point where you just got to be quiet about it. Leave it alone. You know, you, you, can, you, know you, you corrected it. You talked about it. Move on. Don't keep hanging out in that one point. Otherwise, that strife will never cease. If you keep putting another log on the fire... It's never going to go out. And if you keep on talking about it, that situation will never come to an end. Just, I mean, it's just simple, good, practical advice. And then he says that we should pursue good for yourself and all. And on a close in verses 16 through 18, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So what is your attitude with leadership? What is the attitude with one another? And what is the attitude of praise in your life? And by the way, there in verse eighteen, the "you," where it says, "For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you," the "you" is a plural "you," not a singular "you." So yeah, it does have the. I mean, we can take these as individual um, exhortations and apply them to our life, but it's it's speaking to us, we as a group. Paul's saying to the Thessalonians, you guys should, as a church, be rejoicing. You, as a church, should be praying without ceasing. You, as a church, should be giving thanks, and that's what God wants from your life. Rejoice and pray and give thanks always. This is the language of the Christian. This is the heavenly language. When you get to heaven, how familiar will you be with the tongue of praise and the tongue of thanksgiving and the tongue of prayer? Is it going to feel awkward in your mouth? Is it going to feel foreign to make that sound, to put that kind of praise together? Listen, I get it. I understand. Just like you, there, I know what it's like when I first really began to, to uh, walk with the Lord and become expressive publicly. It was kind of like it felt uncomfortable to pray out loud. It felt uncomfortable to sing out loud and to show any kind of even a biblical expression of the lifting of hands or bowing down before him or standing before him, and just a sense of like, you know, self, uh, you know, just self-awareness of like, oh my gosh, everybody's looking at me, and and then it feels strange and it doesn't feel natural. But why? Why does it feel? Like, and, and it really speaks to the lack of involvement that you're having with the Lord all week long. If you're talking to Jesus all week long and you come to church and you're still talking with him, that doesn't feel weird. If you're thanking him all week long and you're praising him all week long and you're rejoicing and you come in to the, to the conversation corporately of the church, then you fit right in. But if you're not used to praising the Lord or praying to the Lord or thanking the Lord, Yeah, it's going to feel a little strange to you. But this is the attitude of praise that should dominate our gatherings. You know, I think, you know, just as we are as individuals, some of us tend to be more like Eeyores, and some of us tend to be more like what? Tiggers. Tiggers. Yeah, we know who's the Tiggers. Um, But um, so you have the Eeyores and you have the Tiggers. And we all kind of have just this natural disposition. But here's. What the Word of God says that we should be. We should all be people that are rejoicing always. We're praying without ceasing. And in everything, we are giving thanks. Not despair, not prayerlessness, and not complaint. We are to be, we are the ones that should be the most optimistic because. God has saved us, and we know that He's coming back for us, or we will go to Him first. And we know that He's working all things together for the good. We know that we can pray to Him, and that He's going to hear us, and He's going to answer us. And so there shouldn't be this despair. There shouldn't be this spirit of complaint. You know, honestly, step back and say, Does my speech cause the room to be filled with joy? And thanksgiving, or does my speech, tend to make everything seem desperate and out of control? Because that's not the will of God for you. Now, you might be more wired like an Eeyore than a Tigger, but nonetheless, this is who we are to be. Make a conscious decision to walk in these attitudes, to be, when you come together, to be thanking. But but again, We're not just putting on a show when we get here. This needs to be happening in our week. So that when we do come together, it's just an extension of what has already been happening. So an attitude check. Attitude check with leadership, with others, just our brothers and sisters, and our attitude of praise. Now here's the great thing. We get a chance to close the service out here by sharing in communion. And this should cause us to have much thanksgiving. And much rejoicing that we have been saved. And not just that we've been saved, but we've been saved like this. Jesus said, there's no greater love than this, than that a man would lay down his life for another. And God sent his son to become the God-man to lay down his life for you and for me. No greater love. We are reminded as we hold in just a moment that bread and that cup of Jesus' broken body, the bread, and of his spilt blood, that cup, And that these are the symbols of what he did on the cross. And they tell us, nobody loves you more than me. Nobody loves you more than me. And I mean, the communion service, it communicates a lot of things. Our partnership, our unity, that we are one family. It also tells us about the ugliness of sin. You're going to hold a broken piece of bread. You're going to hold in your hand the fruit of the vine that's been crushed and has been squeezed just as Jesus was crushed and He was broken for us. And so it tells us of the ugliness of sin, that sin must be punished, that it produces death, it even produced death in the Son of God. So we are told of the love of God, we're told of the ugliness of sin, but we also are told that we are clean. We are clean. The Lord has made us righteous because of His finished work on the cross.